You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bo's Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show. And I'm your host, Westlane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich. And we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, where we're waiting for the storm that's coming on Friday. But it's a beautiful day today here in the Pacific Northwest. And today is a day we all get to say thanks to our veterans that served our country. Um, you know, I, it, it's kind of cool that we just happened to do the show on Wednesdays and Veterans Day is falling on a Wednesday this year, so we're doing a Veterans Day show. And I'm going to spend some time talking about a veteran that I've gotten really close to over the years because he's my father-in-law. But his story is an amazing story that he hadn't told anyone, including his spouse and his daughters, three daughters, for 40 years almost. Yeah, almost 40 years when he finally, on on a what they call a, a a bluebird day, duck hunting because it was a you know clear blue sky day and the ducks are all flying so high that that you can't see them, so they call it a bluebird day, uh, and sitting in the blind basically doing nothing, um, you know he opened up to me this, back in the 80s and told the entire story of his service in World War II from getting drafted out of high school all the way through um, getting um, discharged uh, in New Jersey and having to find a bus to get home <laughs> and all that, and how, how little fanfare there was when he was discharged. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about his story because it's, it's an incredible story. And it's one of those stories that, you know, Robin, are you hearing Louie outside? Oh. Wolf. <laughs> I'm going to apologize, but my dogs think there's a squirrel in the tree right outside my window today. Squirrel. Squirrel. <laughs> oh, gosh. So occasionally if you hear Wolf, that's Louie and Piper. Or me. Squirrel hunting. Um yeah, I, I went out there and looked. I couldn't find the squirrel uh, and tried to get distract them and get them to stop, and they're back at it again. They're convinced there's a squirrel in that maple tree right outside my window. But uh, we put on reliable sources that there is no squirrel. Yes, yes. Just like there's no evidence of, of any voter fraud or tampering going on in, in, in the in, you know Philadelphia or Atlanta, Fulton County or Detroit, or Milwaukee, um, but we'll, we'll get we'll get to that later in the show. Up, oh, up! Oh, I just I Louis broke his concentration to come in here and say hello. So um, we'll talk a little bit about Linwood today. 
we'll probably talk a little bit about floodplain again and fires um, because that came up before our board of commissioners yesterday. And I think I'm starting to steer us in the right direction um, with that code revision. Um, and fortunately, we'll have another shot at it, another two shots at it at least, because I at least got them to change language, which means they'll be that come before the board at least two more times. So um, two more chances to make try and get it right. And uh, it, actually, if I get them change some language next meeting, it'll be two more chances. You know, so we'll we'll see how we do. Um, right now, we're in a duck blind, waiting for the rest of the story. Yes, yes, we are. So. You know, Linwood, first of all, I have to describe Linwood to you. Linwood probably comes up to, you know, my shoulder here on me. He might be all of five eight. Um, and is a not a not a hefty guy. He's, you know, uh, you know, full on uh, English background to him in, in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, so he's a little a little, you know, uh, guy with you know, although his family history goes way back to revolutionary times because um, my wife's in the daughters of an American Revolution because one of her relatives fought in the Revolutionary War, um, and they've been in the, the Americas that long, but his heritage is almost purely British, thus the last name of Davenport. <laughs> um, but, you know, Linwood uh, was born into a... Uh, you know, a large uh, extended family that owned uh, some agricultural property in the coastal plains of North Carolina. Uh, so that was where he grew up. And as a young man, you know, he helped with the family farm and all that, as most farm families did. And their, their family grew vegetables, you know, tended a few livestock for, for you know, feeding themselves. Uh, milk, eggs, that sort of thing, you know, something straight out of, you know, if you imagine Dorothy's family on the Wizard of Oz or something like that. Um, and in addition to that, though, being in North Carolina, they also grew tobacco, mostly for cash. And that was what paid some of the other bills. Uh, it wasn't their primary crop. Uh, it was kind of a side crop for his family. But uh one day in 1931, in the, in the fall of 1931, uh, his, you know, uh, dad and his brothers and, and, you know, the mostly adult males of the family uh, loaded up the truck with their tobacco crop and took it into to, uh, one of the larger towns a uh, couple hours away to go to auction and, and sell their crop off. Well, on the way back, his uncle, who was driving the truck at the time with all the family members, you know, in those days, people sat in the back of a pickup and, and everything, uh, you know, decided he was going to race a train to a crossing. And he didn't make it. And almost every male adult member of his extended family was killed that day. Uh, so he lost his father in 1931 um, at a pretty young age, and his mother was left with seven children, including Linwood, who was the oldest at the time. And, you know, 1931, you're in the middle of the Great Depression, 
and uh, you know they they tried to stay on the farm for a couple of years, and ultimately it, this is terrible, but the family asked them to leave because they couldn't keep up their part of the farm with no man in the house uh, after a couple of years. Fortunately, his mom had teaching credentials and ended up teaching at a orphanage uh, that was also a dairy farm and got all the young, it was the only way she could keep the family whole. She enrolled all the kids in the orphanage school and they got to stay in the orphanage dorms. Uh, but Linwood was considered too old at the time and had to uh, milk cows uh, to, for his, his room and board. Uh, so, you know, that, that was kind of, I, I think that happened somewhere about 1937. They ended up in the, in the orphanage. Uh, and so he was too old at the time and uh, at 11 or something like that, had to get up in the morning and milk cows, you know, as a job, you know, before he went to school uh, to make his room and board. So fast forward a few years. And uh, Linwood graduates from high school at age 17. And the day after his graduation in 1943, he gets a letter from the president saying, your neighbors and, 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 and uh, community have chosen you to serve your country. Um, and so he was drafted in, you know, right out of high school at 17, knowing that he was going to turn 18 uh, in June, you know, uh, later in June to, to make him legal. And, uh, you know, he, he uh, had to take a train up to an induction center uh, in Alexandria, Virginia time, or no, sorry, Richmond, Virginia. And it was his first time out of the state of North Carolina or even out of Eastern North Carolina. Uh, so he goes up there and at the advice of, of one of his other uncles that actually that wasn't on the, the truck at the time, uh, because he, he, he told him that he didn't want to he didn't want to drown. So he shouldn't join the Navy. So he should join the Army. He, he signed up for the Army, uh, which he is mad at that uncle to this day, because <laughs> it turned out to be pretty uh, uh uh, amazing piece of service that he had in World War II uh, and saw a lot of action. So here's this 17 year old, you know, gets, gets inducted, uh, gets sent to, to boot camp and all that stuff. And they decide that they're going to train him to be on a um, anti-tank gun crew. And, you know, of course, coming from the country and all that stuff and, and, being a farm boy, he'd actually shot guns uh, and over his childhood and was the only person in his unit that had really good aim with the gun. You know, what, and when they were shooting the gun, they actually put a, a, a barrel inside of it that shot a 22 shell, you know, so that they could, you know, do target practice without using real shells. And he had the best aim, so he became the gunner for his um, – 37 millimeter recoilless rifle, which was the anti-tank gun at that time in the, in the U.S. infantry, which was like a pea shooter against a panzer tanker and, and basically ricocheted off a tiger. Um, 
was not we did not have good anti-tank guns um, in the war until towards the end when they came out with the 57 millimeter. But that's a whole other story and too much military history for most of you guys, but people. But he ended up being the gunner on an anti-tank squad and was uh, deployed. And he was deployed as as replacement into the um, 143rd um, Regiment of the uh, Texas Infantry uh, and 36th Division Texas Infantry, uh, which was originally a Texas National Guard unit. And uh, he, they put him on a ship, sent him across the, uh, the Atlantic, uh, landed in Morocco. They put him on a train, trucked him across northern Africa. You know, so here, you know, mind you, this is the kid that hadn't been out of North Carolina a few months before this training. Gets on his first trip on a boat, you know, was zigzagging for the submarines and all that stuff. And ends up in northern Africa, then on a train, you know, where they're running up to the train and selling people oranges, you know, and an orange was kind of a a rare fruit for somebody that grew up in eastern North Carolina. Um, You know, the little kids are running up and trying to sell oranges when the train stops for water and stuff, um, gets into port north, North Africa, put him on another boat, take him into the port of Salerno. And uh, if, if folks know anything about the history of World War II, um, there was an amphibious landing of the mainland uh, portion of Italy, you know, from Sicily. You know, it was launched. You know, after after uh, Sicily was uh, taken, they, their next step was this uh, attack on Salerno um, with the American forces and another attack. Um, right across from Sicily with the British forces and the British were going to go up the east side of Italy and the Americans were going to go up the west side because the center of Italy is pretty mountainous and and impassable in a lot of ways. Um, But the American landing uh, Italy was was really uh, pretty horrific for some of the units there. And Linwood came in as there to be a replacement. And when his boat pulled up in Salerno, they literally had to use gangplanks and walk from sunken ship to sunken ship because they couldn't get up to the docks for all of the German and U.S. shipping that had been sunk in that harbor. So that's his introduction to getting ready to serve. I see that we have someone on the line, Robin, with a question. Um, word, word. Oh, yeah. yeah, this whole, you know what I would do? I would take all this off. So, so, is, is this Annie? Do you have a question? Oh, well. yeah. Hi. No, hi, Jay. I just want to thank you for doing this show on Veterans Day. It's real important for us to remember and bring their it, stories to life. It is. And I wish Linwood could tell his story for everybody. But like I said, he became the gunner on an, on an anti-tank gun. And his hearing is now so bad, I can't get him to converse well. So I'm telling the story mm-hmm. for him because I've heard all parts of this story on and off over the years, but I got to hear the complete story in a single day, um, which I feel really blessed to have done because after that, he finally told his family about it and, and it was a huge 
catharsis for him to actually talk about what he actually saw and did. He still won't talk details, though. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to honor Linwood, happy to honor our veterans, um, and, and um, our World War II vets that we're losing at an alarming rate nowadays to all the way up yeah. to our, our recent veterans uh, that have been fighting the war on terror Absolutely. around the world. So. Absolutely. Well, I have, I have a good friend who um, has a little wood shop um, called Good Turnings here in Veneta. And he mm-hmm. has created um, three bracelets that he would like to give away today. And they have oh. the, um, the VSM, the Vietnam Service Medal on them. And so I just wanted to get the word out that we have three of these to give away to um, our Vietnam vets today at the Emporium in Veneta. Great. And folks, and that's in the, uh, the old church building, right? Right, right, the old church. And this is a, a, a gift from a Vietnam vet who now owns a company called Good Turnings here. So just a, a real great guy, and he wanted to share that and felt that this would be a good way to do it is to have us distribute them for them. Yeah, well, I, I, I hope that some of the local Vietnam vets hear this and stop by. Um, that's really great of him to do that. I appreciate that. And if Absolutely. people don't know where the Emporium is, think of where our daily bread used to be. <laughs> um, yeah, it's and, used uh, to be. But, but that's not the important part of the day. The important part of the day is our veterans and honoring them and being thankful for their service because without them, we, we wouldn't have the freedom we do and we wouldn't have the lifestyles we do. It, it's all because of them. Very grateful. Oh, yes, it is. Yeah, very grateful. and. Okay. and Absolutely. And well, I want to go, and I want to keep listening to your story, so keep it going. All right. Thank you, Annie. Thank you. So I'll just tell folks again that um, that Annie is there at the Emporium, which is kind of an artist um, and, and uh, cooperative in some ways there in the old, uh, what used to be the um, our Daily Bread, which at one point was a Pentecostal church um, and actually was a surplus World War II building. Uh, getting back to our story, um, that was originally moved to Benita way back, uh, I think, in the early 50s and made into a Pentecostal church for a while. Uh, eventually became a, a, a bakery and then a restaurant. And now it's, uh, you know, the Emporium. And if you you are a Vietnam vet and interested in getting a uh, uh, one of those bracelets. Um, stop by there. Um, he's got three of them to give away. So, you know, Linwood shows up in Salerno and he reports to the the repo depot, as he calls it, which was the the where the the uh, folks that were coming in as replacements, you know, uh, had to report and. You know, he gets to the the repo depot, you know, they take all his information and whatever else, you know, tell him to wait. And then they put him on a truck with a bunch of other guys. And the truck drives away from Salerno towards the north. Uh, And, you know, in the distance, you're starting to hear um, the artillery uh, going off. And 
every once in a while the truck would stop and they'd have two guys get off or you know one guy get off and the truck would keep going and, and finally it got down to where just Linwood and one other guy were left on the truck and at this point it sounds like the artillery is around the truck for him uh, and the truck finally stops and it's the uh, you know his 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 regiment uh, and his his uh, he gets out and reports uh, you know they put him out to the, the tent where the sergeant is he's supposed to report to so he goes in the tent and there's a bunch of guys in there playing poker and the guys are playing poker and he's standing there waiting to get the attention of the sergeant and uh, one of the guys you know is going on about how the Texans are going to going to win the war and and and, uh, and all that and uh linwood finally pipes up and says i'll sure be damn glad when they do <laughs> which forever endeared him to his sergeant at that time <laughs> um but yeah he reports to the sergeant after interrupting the poker game and, and they point out you know set your tent up here and the, the two of them set the tent up you know, and, and they've both been trained you know for this anti-tank gun uh, slipping in the tent that night, and the next morning um, they get rousted up, thrown on a truck, uh, towing their the the piece of artillery behind it, you know, and their 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 anti-tank um, platoon heads down and sets up for the assault across the Rapido River at Casino. Now. I don't know how many people know the history of World War II well. Uh, most people have probably seen, you know, movies about Monte Casino and, and various, you know, theatrics around that. But it was probably one of the worst planned military maneuvers in the history of World War II, just about, where um, General Clark decided he was going to cross the river from a peninsula in, you know, kind of it, the river took a big bend. So he was putting his guys out on this peninsula where the Germans were basically on three sides of them, had clear sight of them from the town and um, just chewing pieces with artillery. Uh, and his unit went down to the river to make that crossing in three trucks and two Jeeps and came back on one Jeep. And Lynn, you know, said, you know, they, they were dug in as much as they could, you know, in the soil there and were trying to get as small as they could as the artillery is going off around them. And an 88 shell landed on one side of them. And somehow or another, the, the concussion from the shell skipped over him and killed the guy on the other side of them. And he survived that. He was kind of like, he said, I knew at that point I was going to, I was going to make it through this thing. You know, is what he told me, and you know, he's, he's telling me this in the, in the duck blind, and I'm going, oh my god. <laughs> but you know, and he wouldn't, he doesn't talk about the action or anything. You know, his his, his whole story about the Rapido River is we went down there with three trucks and two jeeps, and we came back on what? So you can imagine how many guys you can get three trucks and two jeeps, and you get them back on one jeep. Uh, his unit took incredible losses. In fact, uh, two of the uh, um, regiments of the 36th Division got so shot up um, in trying to get across the Rapido River, they had to re, 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 do a lot of replacements for them too. Um, and when they 
they brought them back in. Their next action they really saw um, it was to be active in the breakout of, of the Anzio beachhead, uh, which had been a kind of a stalemate. And they brought the uh, 36th Division over there, and they were part of the action that went around the end of the beachhead and up the backside of the mountain in the middle of the night. And he remembers um, being concerned that the bulldozer that was cutting the road that his truck was following they literally were cutting the road in front of the trucks was going to be noisy enough over the artillery that was going off that the Germans would hear them coming and, and catch them out in the open. Um, so their unit, you know, it was part of the breakout of Anzio. Uh, it uh, captured um, Alatria, which was the gateway to Rome uh, and it allowed for the liberation of Rome by the fifth army. Um, and, you know, that, that's made lots of movies and all that, you know, the liberation of Rome. And then they got kind of pulled back, resupplied. And uh, at that point, he had been in the field so long uh, with his unit that when they pulled them back and they all went through um, de-lousing and everything, and they got new uniforms, they got showers, they got shaved. He didn't recognize the guys in his unit because he had, First of all, he hadn't known them very long before they were sent down to the, to the Repeater River. And then they hadn't shaved and showered in so long um, that when they came out with new uniforms and shaved and showered and all that and a haircut, he didn't recognize them. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's how long those guys were living in foxholes and, and you know, occasionally a, a good night would be in a, in the, in a barn or a farmhouse if they got that for uh, an overnight accommodation. Um, just an incredible action that he saw just in Italy. And after they got all cleaned up, they ended up being part of D-Day Southern France, which people forget there's more than one D-Day. D-Day only refers to, you know, when the actual landings happened, <laughs> not, not just Normandy. There were multiple D-Days over, over the course of, World War II, and he participated in the amphibious landing of France and Provence and fought with the Fifth Army on the way up um, into France around the end of, you know, the edge of Italy and, you know, the foothills of the Alps there uh, for Switzerland, ended up fighting in the, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but I think the Bozage Mountains, um, and then uh, you know, fought there at the border of Germany um, and had saw a lot of action there as the Germans uh, got surrounded at one point and then broke out of there um, with a uh, being led by um, tanks. And of course, you know, most, a lot of people, you know, bolted from their, their stations there. And, but he, he uh, actually, you know, held tight him and him and his uh, lieutenant at the time. By then, I think he was actually a sergeant. Uh, he ended up the war as a first sergeant, came in and, you know, started out at the Rapido River as a buck private. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he stayed with his gun and uh, they got a chance to take a shot at a tank. Um, as, he, as he said, you know, we had set up between a couple of trees of the barrel and we had a little bit of traverse, so we were only going to get one shot at it. 
and the shot went over the tank and they had to bolt out of there really fast before the tank turned and returned fire. Um, but uh, some of his actions in staying put and helping delay um, the German advance uh, you know, was where he got his bronze star, uh, was that some of his actions in that day and helping delay that, that breakout to allow some of the rest of his um, unit to get clear. Um, he also had a uh, Purple Heart uh, and was actually nominated for a Silver Star, um, but the paperwork never went through. And, you know, there was a lot of that that happened with World War II where people were um, supposed to get accommodations that never really got them. Um, but he tells a couple stories even of, of being in southern France where, you know, they're on one side of a, a river and the Germans were on the other. And of course, the Germans had mined um, their side, and uh, the Americans had laid down. You know, one of the things his anti-tank unit did was lay down mines. And they put mines on their side of the bridge, and as they were sitting there, all of a sudden, here comes this cart being pulled by a mule that that's bolting down the road towards the bridge. And obviously gotten spooked by artillery or something. And um, the, the damn you know, donkey or, or mule misses every mine on the German side, managed to miss every mine on, on the uh, American side and run right through their lines. And eventually it got, you know, they caught it and stopped it back at the headquarters. And it turns out it had a whole bunch of, it, you know, that was how the Germans were delivering food to their soldiers, so it had all this food on it um, that they got to eat really well that that night uh, in headquarters. And uh, his lieutenant, you know, was, you know, they were all so dumbfounded that it didn't get blown up that they failed to stop it. And the lieutenant bawled them out for not stopping the mule because they could have had the food <laughs> instead of the headquarters folks. But just crazy stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, these little stories he he throw in the middle of this progression of how. He ended up in uh, his unit did actually cross into Germany, part of liberating a uh, concentration camp, one of the very first concentration camps to be liberated in southern Germany. And at that time, there were such a new discovery that Eisenhower came down to tour it because it you know, was that, no, that novel. Um, and what was fascinating to Linwood was you know, here these people were walking skeletons. And he said there were bodies stacked inside there like cordwood, uh, just stacked, as he put it. Uh, and the people came up to them, at, at, you know, because all the guards just left and left the gates open. The people were just kind of milling around aimlessly. And the people came up to them, and they did not ask for food. They asked for cigarettes. It just it was and of course Lynn had a lot of them because he didn't smoke and 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 in those days your 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 rations came with three cigarettes in them so he was always um, well supplied and other stuff because he was always trading his cigarettes away uh, but uh, he had plenty of cigarettes and was handing them out but it just amazes me that over starvation people were more interested in in that tobacco nicotine addiction. <laughs> It's just insane. But Eisenhower did come and tour that 
concentration camp and Linwood says, you know, I, I actually got to see Ike cry as he was touring that camp. Um, and it's just a, I, I encourage Lynn to tell a story to lots of young people who think that um, the Holocaust may be just some kind of myth or isn't real. Because when he talks about that concentration camp, and I'm kind of glossing over it to, to some degree, and the bodies stacked like cordwood, and General Eisenhower, you know, breaking down in tears as he's touring this camp, um, it's powerful. Uh, and it was one of the last things they did before uh, the war in Europe ended, and uh, he ended up doing security work in southern Germany for several months before he was actually sent home. And as part of that, they were guarding an underground jet factory uh, that was there in southern Germany that was completely buried and but huge under this you know, forested area. Um, and it was a large area for them to patrol. So uh, him and, you know, at this point, he's first sergeant and the lieutenant found a German motorcycle that they decided they were going to use for patrolling around there, and a couple of them. So they're both uh, riding these motorcycles. Of course, neither of them really knew much about riding a motorcycle. And they'd gone in opposite directions and, and met up kind of around the other side of their patrol perimeter and heading at each other. Couldn't figure out which way they were going to pass and ended up wrecking. It was the last time he ever rode a motorcycle. <laughs> Fortunately, neither of them were hurt, but just one of those silly stories, you know, that it, the potential for getting, you know, hurt and, and possibly killed after all the action he saw, after the Rapido River, after amphibious landings, after the breakout, you know, after everything that he, he did and saw, um, you know, he, he almost killed himself riding a German motorcycle. Um you know, just it's one of those silly things, uh, you know, and he finally, they realized he had way more points than he needed to um, with all his actions and and, uh, and uh, accommodations he had received to be rotated back home. And he finally got rotated home uh, through, and he got to go through Paris on the way, so he got to see Paris and uh, rotated home and got discharged out uh, in New Jersey. And basically, the army just turned him loose, <laughs> didn't notify his family or anything like that. There was nobody there to pick him up, no, no fanfare or anything. He just walked out of base one day and had to find a, a you know the bus depot and and figure out how to catch a bus to to find his family, who at that point had moved up to Alexandria because his mother had gotten a job. Uh, with the government at that point, and it moved the family. And uh, after getting out, uh, he was going to go to school, and he uh, enrolled in George Washington University because he you know, living right there in Alexandria. And uh, you know, he ended up pulling out and using his GI money instead, GI Bill money instead, to buy a house for his family. And then he got a job driving um, DC transit buses, uh, driving a bus, and uh, paid for his younger brothers to all go through college. And 
you know, worked his way into a, a job with USDA eventually and ended up spending 33 years working for USDA in their fruit and vegetable inspection services. And uh, at one point was in charge of all the inspection services in the state of North Carolina, which is where Elizabeth spent most of her time growing up and was kind of coming back home for him in some ways. And uh, retired from there, ended up not retiring well and got a job with the Delaware Department of Agriculture where his Elizabeth's mom is originally from and uh, lived out most of the rest of his life in the Dover area and eventually uh, ended up having to end up uh, living with one of the daughters, um, lived with us for a while, lived with his other daughter, Suzanne, for a while. And ultimately now he's in a veteran's home in Kentucky uh, nearby um, Elizabeth's sister's house. And that's where we went out to visit him. But just think of, you know, what it took for a person, you know, to survive that childhood of losing your dad and, and all those male, you know, adult figures moving into an orphanage. You know, I didn't even tell the story about how he ended up, before they moved to the orphanage, how he drove his mother to the hospital when she had appendicitis, even though he could barely reach the pedals and see over the dashboard at the same time and really didn't know how to drive a car <laughs> because he just happened to be the only one there when his mother fell ill in the middle of the night. <laughs> um, you know, gets through the depression, graduates from high school, is immediately drafted, and the first thing they do is send him across the ocean, northern Africa, into Italy, first thing he ends up doing is trying to cross the Rapido River and, and onward from there into, you know, liberating a concentration camp and uh, being rotated back home finally and basically being released. Um, you know, and here's a person that, you know, now is, is in his, you know, his 20, um, almost 21 when he's released and uh, basically starts his life at that point uh, when most kids have you know gone to college and everything else um, had pulls out of college to put put you know to buy a house for his family works to put his brothers through college eventually gets a you know a government job works his way up through the, in the management in the government um, you know raises a family and all that yet had never told anyone the story about his service he told he might have told the stories about you know being on the the farm you know being in the orphanage about the the, the train wreck um, but he never talked about his service until he sat in that duck blind with me and and basically just started talking and I just sat there and listened um, and after that we finally you know I finally uh, got him to sit down with Bill London from KP and W and tell his story with Bill. Um, Bill actually interviewed him off the air because it was so difficult to get Linwood to talk and kind of spliced the story together and did a segment on the wake up call. Um, and I actually got that recorded and, and copied and sent to all, all the, uh, his grandchildren and children uh, so they could have that story for their own. And uh, he's just, you know, you think about that generation and that was the sacrifice. And, and when you 
say, you know, Linwood, you're incredible. I can't believe he's like, I didn't, his, his response to that was, is like so many veterans. I just did what anyone else would do. And, and I stand there with my mouth open. You know, it's, I just did what anyone else would do. They, it just kind of blows it off. You, you know, it, he's gotten to the point where he actually now enjoys when people thank him for his service. That was really uncomfortable for him. You know, when he first started, you know, after he told me the story, eventually I got him uh, hooked up with his um, 36 Divisions uh, um, uh, World War II Association, and we actually went to some reunions together. Uh, I helped, you know, I helped him travel, kind of was his, his buddy. And I got to hear some of the other stories, and all of them were the same way. I mean, these guys all have incredible stories. Uh, one of which, one of the guys that comes to his reunions, a Japanese American, that of course had to serve in Europe because he wasn't allowed to serve in um, the the Pacific Front because you know they were worried about that, and uh, he actually got his unit got cut off from the main unit in in the mountains there in southern France and had quite a story of escaping that. There were other guys in his unit that actually had gotten taken prisoner of war. Uh, early on and spent the entire war in German prison camps. And, you know, the, one of the gentlemen that I spoke with was about six foot six. And he talks about coming out of that, that, that camp, which ended up on the Russian side of the, um, <laughs> of Germany. Uh, and he had to get, he had to walk back to the American side. Uh, and at the time he was weighing, about 160 pounds at six foot six. Um, and, and just like the rest, I just did what anyone else, you know, anyone else would have done. You know, it, it was the way these guys all just kind of dismissed their service. And so many veterans are that way. And we have to recognize their sacrifice because not just anyone else would have done that. And one of the part of the story I didn't really talk about was when Linwood was taking that train to uh, go to the induction center, there were guys on the train that it was their fourth or fifth time going there. And they actually had it down and were talking on the train about how they were going to do various things to make sure that their blood pressure was too high or that they're, you know, they didn't pass the physicals because they were there were people even in World War II, believe it or not, that were draft dodgers. Um, you know, we all associate that with the Vietnam War. Um, any war scares people enough to want to avoid serving. And these guys willingly served. They didn't take the easy way out and try and do, you know, gymnastics to run their blood pressure up or get, and get a 4F. Um, they, 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 went through the induction, they serve in a, in a unit that's well decorated, that, 30, that T-patch, 36th Division, and uh, just pretty amazing. And, and all of our veterans, that is, you know, that um, being that close to losing your life, you know, that 88 round that went off on one side and killed the guy on the other side, um, you know, that that's there for anyone that serves at any time. You know, even the folks that are in support units and everything else, um, they're not safe jobs. 
and not a guarantee of being safe, no matter where you serve. So folks that serve, and, and lets you know that it's not what just anyone else would have done. You're special. You're what keep this country free, and we really appreciate your service. I only wish I had served, but I was born in an odd time. Late 1957 means I turned 18 after the fall of Saigon and was military age at a time when the reduction in force uh, under Jimmy Carter was in full swing and uh, careers in the military uh, didn't go very far. Um, and there was not a lot of opportunity, and they weren't really recruiting or looking for people to serve as I turned 18. They were trying to reduce the size of our military significantly. Um, by the time it swung around the other way, I was married to Elizabeth and starting my engineering career. So although I didn't get to serve, um, you know, it, it's uh, – and I'm in a weird place where both my brothers had draft cards for the, you know, during the Vietnam, my older brothers and my younger brother had to register for the draft when he turned 18. I didn't because I was in that little gap there between the end of, uh, of the uh, Vietnam War and when they actually started mandatory draft registration again. So um, I really appreciate other people's service, having not really had a good opportunity to serve myself. I wonder if my life would have probably been way different. Um, I get, you know, like to thank all those veterans I know from Linwood to, uh, you know, my uh, good friend Ted Twig and his brothers and his sons that are serving now um, to my uh, cousin's husband, who's now a, a general in the Air Force. Uh, and, and actually is the head of the Air Force Academy at this time. Uh, so lots of service in my family. I just unfortunately was not able to serve myself. Don't know if I had actually passed the physicals at that time because I got crooked feet. Uh, and and uh, who knows? I was a little, I was a little waif of a person uh, when I was uh, in and not exactly a heavy guy now either, but it, it, when I graduated high school, I was only 5'8". I grew four inches my freshman year, so I was a rail um, when I was turning 18. So uh, that's kind of my story of Linwood, and I just hope that everybody goes out there and thanks a veteran today and uh, appreciates the sacrifice they made to make sure our country stays free. And that things like that concentration camp and the Holocaust can never happen again. And, and we just have to um, appreciate the sacrifice those people made uh, and, and the sacrifice people are making today on behalf of us. So thank you to all our veterans. I'm going to change topics a little bit, but I'll pause to remind folks, just as Annie did, you know, and, and remind folks again also that Annie's uh, friend that does the woodworking there at, at the uh, the old 
um, our daily bread location there uh, is giving away three bracelets to Vietnam vets today if you want to show up um, there. And uh, this is a call-in show. And Annie called in with that information. You can call in with whatever you want at 646-721-9887. Just press 1, and that lets me know you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's 646-721-9887. And just press 1 so that Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, knows you want to get in on the conversation because uh, some people call and just listen because uh, they have to walk away from a computer or uh, and or moving around in their car can be an easy way to listen, particularly with you know these hands-free uh, devices in your cars where it comes through your stereo system. Great way to listen to the Bose No Show live on a Wednesday. But remember, you can listen to any of our past shows at any time just by going to the KRBN Internet News Talk. Facebook page, or you can go to the Blog Talk Radio page, which is the the links I put up there. They live forever. So if you want to, if you miss part of the Linwood story, you can go back and start from the beginning. Once we the show gets archived, which will be later on uh, tonight or tomorrow, but all the past shows live there too. So you know, keep an eye out for us on Facebook. We're also on iTunes and a bunch of other places. You can find the the Bose Nose Show, and KRBN Internet News Talk Radio. So a couple of pieces of county business we'll talk about here for a few minutes, and then we'll get on to some national stuff maybe just for a minute because I did use up a lot of time on Linwood. But uh, yesterday we had a board meeting, and I've been talking on past shows, and last week in particular I spent quite a bit of time talking about floodplain, floodway, and increased standards and what they problems they might cause for people that want to rebuild after the holiday farm fire. Uh, and yesterday we had another reading of that code update. And fortunately, I think I'm starting to make some headway with some of my fellow commissioners to understand how the changes they were proposing might impact fire victims and just impact people that want to build a home in general. And I kind of got them to at least propose some changes to the ordinance uh, and some exceptions that'll come back to us in December for another reading. And we'll still have to go to one more reading if we don't make any changes in what staff comes back to us with, but we're getting there. And and I just want to say, I'm starting to get a little bit more hopeful. I haven't quite gotten them to back away from going beyond what FEMA asked us to do um, because it, you know, that doesn't just, it's not just the fire victims that have to do that extra foot of elevation. That's going to be anyone that constructs in a floodplain or anyone maybe that has to replace a house that was built in the floodplain um, that they have to replace for some other reason than the holiday farm fire, which is what the exception is going to be written very specific to. Um, But we're getting there. There's still some issues. People need to still pay attention because, you know, there's a lot of the houses that burnt down are in the floodplain, not the floodway, 
and that extra foot of elevation and the compensatory fill requirements and a few other things that are in the current version of the code could cost those people money. Won't prevent them from rebuilding, it'll just make it more expensive for them to rebuild. And we wanna try and prevent that. So we're gonna keep working on that. In addition, we got to look at the urban reserves uh, proposals for the city of Eugene and choose which option we wanted to move forward with. And uh, this is a little bit technical in that what we're trying to do is draw a line that includes enough land for the next so many years of growth for the city of Eugene. And so there's, you know, population projections that go into that. There's assumptions about how many dwelling units you can get on, on certain lands. Like if it's sloped, you're not going to get as many dwelling units per acre as it is if it's flat. If it's got a lot of wetlands, you know, various things that cause problems. So there's, it's, it's not an exact science. And when you're starting to look at the longest horizon we looked at, which is 50 years out, even population projections are kind of questionable. But you know, they're, they've been holding fairly true if you look back on our growth. Um, generally, a 1% growth rate is not an unreasonable growth rate for Oregon. Um, and based on that, we're going to need a significant amount of, of acreage, over 3,000 additional acres, um, to accommodate that growth for 50 years. And, you know, right now, the urban growth boundary accommodates 20 years of growth. And what we're doing is doing the next 30 years. But our options were, should we look out 50 years? Should we look out 49 years? Should we look out 47? Or should we only look 30 years out? That was kind of the options we're looking at, or not looking at it at all. You know, it was an option. There's a, basically a, a don't adopt anything. And what urban reserves allow a city to do is, in the future, once you've identified where you're going to grow by urban reserves, it makes it easier to change the urban growth boundary within that that urban reserve uh, circle that you draw. And um, we adopted the 47 year look or what you know is they they call it the 27 year option because it's 27 on top of the 20 year of the ugb although i will argue that the ugb does not have 20 years of land in it um but that's another story but it, it got kind of funny because um the 27 year option uh, eliminates class one and class two soils from the 30-year option, so it's it's saving some of the highest value. In class one and two is the highest value farm soils. As you get higher in number of class of soil, the less productive and the less um, that can be grown on that soil. Um, you know, so where that 27-year option actually protects some of the the, the best farmland. And Commissioner Sorensen, I think, got confused and made a motion proposing to adopt the 30-year or 50-year option, which included, you know, proposing that those class one and two soils be part of the city in the long run, and thought he was adopting an option, I think, that protected those areas and got sideways when I amended his motion back to the 27-year 
because he thought I was trying to take in farmland when I was actually removing farmland for what, from what he proposed. It was, it was one of those moments where it's like, yeah, maybe it's a good thing it's your last term, Pete, <laughs> if you're getting that confused right now, um, that you can't keep straight which option protects the farms and which options don't. Um, and you thought you were proposing the one that protected them. Uh, so it was, uh, yeah, it was interesting. But we adopted the 27 year also because the city of Eugene had already adopted the 27 year. So we're both adopting the same one. So we don't have to argue about and try and come to a compromise. We adopted different options. So that'll be moving ahead in the future. Um, but we also talked yesterday a bit about COVID again. And I, I wanted to spend a minute and talk about that because we really have to start paying attention to COVID again, because it is, you know, we're seeing more and more cases. We're seeing, and it's not just cases, because cases for cases sake doesn't mean a whole lot if testing's increasing, which it has been a little bit steadily not enough to adjust for the number of cases we're seeing, but we're also seeing hospitalizations and even ICU um, admittance. That's the dangerous part. And one of the trends we're also seeing is people are not responding to our contact tracing folks. You know, when they do test positive and one of our folks calls, they're not calling back and going over, you know, who have you been in contact with? Do you, do you, you know, where did you track, you know, what stores did you visit? Did you go to any restaurants? You know, when did you go? Those sort of things. So we can try and figure out who might've been exposed and ask them to isolate before they expose other people. We're getting a lot of people not responding to that. And I, I don't understand that because there's no risk to the person. We're not going to hold it against you, you know, if you, um, you know, went to a party or something like that. It's more important for us to get in contact with the other people that were at that party and try and, you know, eliminate the stop the spread. Um, because it's one of these things where as it starts to get away from you, if we get into exponential growth, we will overwhelm our hospital system in this state and want to get there. And we, and we don't want to give our governor and other people an excuse to shut our economy down, down again. The damage that will do at this point to some of our teetering restaurant and uh, hospitality uh, industry and other parts of our, our economy would, would just be horrific. So please folks, take some time to be careful, you know, Think about how many people you're exposing yourself to. Um, try and keep your circle tight and, uh, you know, do all the things we talk about. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Don't go anywhere if you're feeling sick. You know, stay home um, and all those good things. So important to stop that, that, that second resurgence we're seeing again, or third at this point, of COVID and making sure it doesn't go too far because the vaccine's on the horizon, folks. We've got to get there. We can't, you know, too soon to start coasting. 
Uh, once the vaccine's out and being distributed in the general population, not just the first responders, not just for medically fragile people, not just the people over 65, when it starts getting to the general population, then maybe we can start relaxing a little bit. So, well, I was going to talk a little bit about election transparency too today, but I've kind of run out of time here on the Bose Nose Show. And I just want to thank everybody for listening on this Veterans Day. And uh, go out and thank a veteran for their service. And tell them it wasn't something that just anyone would do. That they're special. We appreciate their service. And we'll be back next week. And maybe we'll talk about election transparency then on the Bo's Nose Show here at 4 o'clock. Coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira. Thank you for listening.